Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 4. World War One comes to the Belgian Congo. Last time, we left the people of the Congo adjusting to the new state. They were no longer under the heel of Leopold II, and the Congo Free State had become the Belgian Congo. Their lands and resources were now owned by the Belgian government. The Belgian Parliament built on some of Leopold's organisational legacies, and continued to licence the rights to resources in specific areas of land to companies. In return for this, the companies would invest in developing the land, providing security, and giving a share of profits back to the state. The big difference in governance, however, was transparency, and with this came accountability. The atrocities of the Congo Free State had not gone unnoticed. The world was watching. Companies engaged in operations in the Congo were now starkly aware that foreign powers were looking at what they were up to. Missionaries like William Shepherd had publicised a continuation of enforced labour and abuse in the Kasai, but in the New World, even in the Congo, this whistleblowing was protected. America and the United Kingdom were unforgiving of brutality, and the companies, and indeed Belgium, stood to lose everything if they continued. Importantly, the Belgian people also now had a voice. Unlike King Leopold II, Parliament was answerable to them, and many Belgians were against colonialism from the start. Despite the generally dominant Catholic Party's support of colonialism, both the rival socialist and liberal parties were far less supportive, and these two parties were growing in power. This may lead us to think that times were improving for the peoples of the Congo. To a certain extent, this was true. But the main factor in this was the starting point of any comparison, which was a very low benchmark of absolute tyranny and exploitation. The Congolese were still finding themselves again used as a resource, as men were recruited, by various means, for employment in the new industries. Initially, these new industries were dominated by ivory, wild rubber, cultivated rubber and palm oil. This looked destined to continue, but over 5,000 miles away, a man the vast majority of Congolese had never heard of was shot. More change was coming, and this time the Congolese and Belgians alike would have to face this together. That murdered man was Archduke Franz Ferdinand, shot by a Serbian nationalist on the 28th of June 1914. This enraged the powers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who were firmly against the rise of Serbian nationalism, contrary as this was to their own empire's names. In one of the most disastrous acts of brinkmanship in history, both the Serbs and the Austro-Hungarians mobilised for war. Only one month later, despite British attempts at arbitration, Austro-Hungary declared war. Russia then mobilised in support of the Serbs, despite German protests. Because of this affront, Germany declared war on Russia, and two days after that, followed up by declaring war on France, and with the invasions of neutral Belgium, after both countries had started to mobilise themselves too, in support of their Russian ally. British demands for Germany to withdraw from Belgium were ignored, and one day later, Britain and its entire empire entered the conflict, declaring war on Germany. With the final Austro-Hungarian declaration of war with Russia on August the 6th, the formalities were complete. In two weeks, only six weeks after the assassination of the Archduke, the major European powers settled into two camps, and declared war on each other. To paraphrase the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, 
the lights across Europe had gone out. In the Congo, the regime attempted to remain neutral, as Belgium had also tried to be. But, just like in Europe, German aggression would not allow this. On August 15th, 1914, a German steamboat headed west over Lake Tanganyika from German East Africa. Once it got to the western shore, it opened fire on a small cafe and sunk 15 pirogues. In addition, a small raiding party landed and cut telegraph wires to disrupt communications. With a further raid a week later, the Belgian Congo could not remain neutral. It too was at war with Germany, and that meant Germany's East Africa, just over Lake Tanganyika, and also the Cameroon colonies to its northwest. At the 10,000 foot level, Germany envisaged a colony stretching from the Atlantic coast to the Indian Ocean. It would unify East Africa, today's Tanzania, and Cameroon on the Atlantic coast. The British strategic aim for a continuous Cape to Cairo colony would be scuppered once and for all. As a result of this, the Belgian colony was authorised to use the force publique to defend itself and actually launch an offensive against any hostile powers. But subtly, the balance of power was shifting. The Belgian government was now in exile in the Havre, France, and communications were intermittent. The seeds of autonomy and the true ineffectiveness of Belgium were starting to be revealed. In 1914, the force publique represented the largest army in Central Africa. At its core, it had 17,000 Askaris, the Swahili word, the soldier or policeman. These were led by 178 officers and 235 non-commissioned officers, or NCOs, all of whom were European. The force public's first campaign was in Rhodesia to the south, today Zimbabwe, where they supported British forces in defeating German encroachments. Next, they turned to defeating their own borders in the northwest of the country, where they quickly defeated the German Cameroon forces. Again, they had allied with British forces in a limited skirmish with 600 Congolese Ascaris. This resulted in a victory, and with the southern and western borders secure, the Belgian Congo turned east to the far more powerful German East African foe. In the east, the Germans had been continually on the offensive. They had repeatedly invaded, but this was with limited effect. Officially, they had occupied the land of Idwiji on Lake Kivu, between today's Rwanda and DRC, but this is a little misleading. As we have seen, the borders were very recent and were incredibly porous to the people living there. As late as 1912, the Belgians were officially complaining that the Germans were using the timber there. The Belgians were keen on the borders, as they saw it, but trade continued and superior German goods were traded in eastern Congo, again to Belgian complaints. In reality, there was actually some indigenous support to the German position, particularly after the Leopoldian regime. The German colonials were much more embedded with the East Africans, so much so that one of their captains, Captain Bett, married an African general's daughter. Their daughter, who lived in Belgium after the First World War, came back to Rwanda at the age of 94 in the year 2000. But it was still a war. Much as the Arab-Belgian War had been 20 years earlier, it was a war based on mobility and the defeat of forces and outposts. This was not a war of entrenched positions as seen on the Western Front, and towns were more important than territory. As the conflicts continued, the force public had to be reorganised, and with combat experience, it grew in strength. To fight on the Congo's eastern front, it was divided into three groups, or brigades, with a total force of 25,000 men. 
In addition to this were around 260,000 local porters. Both of these organisations suffered casualties, and not just through combat. Water and provisions were scarce on the campaigns, and about 25,000 of the porters died through exposure, malnutrition and hunger. These unfortunate men were largely press-ganged into service, and with the population now at 10 million, they were taken from all areas of the Congo. But despite such adversity, the force public remained an effective force. There were none of the mutinies that periodically erupted during the wars with the Arabs. Success helped morale considerably. After clearing the Belgian Congo of enemy forces, the force public was preparing to go on the offensive. But first, it needed to take control of Lake Tanganyika. There are not many naval battles in our history of the Congo, but we now have the opportunity to turn our eyes to the water. As a burgeoning global power, Germany had great industrial resources. It had assembled the largest fleet on the lake. To appreciate this, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of the sheer scale of Lake Tanganyika. It stretches 420 miles from north to south, and at an average width of over 30 miles, it was, and is, very much an inland sea. Prior to this conflict, it was always a natural boundary between Germany, East Africa and the DRC. And it had been this barrier between the peoples for many years, separating the tribes in the area long before the colonial maps were drawn up. But now Germany, to all intents and purposes, was in charge. Their fleet consisted of two gunboats, the Gingani and the von Wiesmann, as well as the 1,150-ton van Goetzen. The von Goetzen deserves special mention. It was named after the former German Governor-General and was ordered in 1910, taking inspiration from the British steamships in the southern African colonies. She was actually built in the Papenburg shipyards of northwestern Germany, but over a period of 14 months she was disassembled and shipped to the lake by specially constructed railways for commissioning in January 1914. This plan and achievement represented the long-term ambition that Germany had for its colonies. Once hostilities had started, these boats dominated the central lakes, and they were able to constantly bombard and harass the Congo shoreline. In response, the British disassembled two motorboats in South Africa, and with the help of hundreds of porters transported them by road, river, railway and labour to Lake Tanganyika. HMS Mimi and HMS Tutu were launched in December 1915, and they headed straight for the German fleets. In the first action, only a few days later, they caught the Germans by surprise. The Kingani was damaged and captured, and was put into service in the Royal Navy as HMS Fifi. The conflict continued, and in February 1916, only two months later, there was a battle between the two flotillas. It was another blow for the Germans, and the second gunboat, the von Wiesmann, was sunk. The von Goetzen, however, was just too powerful and remained at large. But the Allies had an even more ambitious plan. Four short Admiralty Type 827 planes had been shipped to the port of Matidi by the British to reinforce the force public. After one month travelling by rail, river and finally portage, these followed the reverse of Stanley's precarious journey only 30 years prior. By July 1916 they were ready to fly, and they launched with the intention of attacking the von Goetzen. This was audacious, not only in ambition, but also in experience. Flying was still very much in its infancy, and no one had yet flown in the tropics, let alone Central Africa. But the planes flew, and in July, much to the alarm of the Germans and the astonished Ascari, the bombs found their target. But they did little damage. 
The planes were really very lightly powered reconnaissance planes, and they couldn't carry the ordnance to damage a ship as large as the von Goetzen. But the tide had turned. The Anglo-Belgian force had regained power on the lake, and it was now time to launch the land offensive. Under the Belgian Marshal, Charles Tombeur, the force public had 15,000 soldiers, supported by over 100,000 porters. The British also had 2,800 soldiers and 10,000 porters, and attacked from Uganda in the north, via Lake Victoria. The 8,000 German soldiers were outnumbered, but this didn't change the objectives of the German High Command. Their overarching tactic was to tie up Anglo-Belgian forces to prevent more support for the British on the European Western Front. They intended to put up a fierce resistance to drain the opposing forces of resources. The force public was now organised into the Northern Brigade and the Southern Brigade, and these two columns drove east from the Congo borders in early May. The Northern Brigade campaigned through Arundi and Rwanda at the north of the lake. These two German colonies lay between the Congo and German East Africa. Through treaties, these historic African kingdoms have managed to retain their historic boundaries, if not their sovereignty. But this sovereignty was to change again, and by the 6th of May, Kigali, the Rwandan capital, was in Congolese hands. By the end of May, all resistance in these two kingdoms ended, and the Northern Brigades headed into German East Africa proper. The Southern Column headed south along the eastern shore of Lake Tanganyika. With support from naval firepower, and anticipation of the size of the force heading towards them, the German military forces abandoned the coastal towns. On 19th of July, the seaplanes dropped propaganda leaflets over Ujiji, where Livingston was met by Stanley all those years before, and the town followed its neighbours and surrendered. Without a port, the Germans scuttled the mighty von Goetze and effectively abandoned the lake. The final offensive was now ready to launch. The objective of this offensive was Tabora, a sizeable city in the German colony. The city sits on an open plain, 1,200 metres above sea level, which assisted in lessening the hot tropical temperatures. This plain was surrounded by hills, which the Germans used as their defensive line. The Southern Brigade reached these lines first, eventually taking the Western Railway Station of Usoki. The Germans launched a fierce counter-attack, including the use of a naval gun mounted on a railway carriage. Continuing the violent assault, the force public broke the defence, and on the 8th of September the perimeter of Tabora was finally reached. The lines had held for four days, and there were significant casualties on both sides. As Tabora was encircled, the German forces were reduced to only 1,100 rifles. The German Ascari regiment started to desert at an increasing rate as the force public's victory looked increasingly likely. Adding to the German woes, the Northern Brigade reached the perimeter of Tabora on the 19th of September. Seeing these reinforcements, the German forces officially retreated. Two columns headed eastwards on the railway, and the remaining column retreated to the south. Now abandoned, the remaining Tabora civilian authorities were left with little choice. And on the 19th of September, they surrendered. This was not without cost. In the final battle, the force public lost over 1,000 soldiers. But World War I, at least in East Africa, was largely over. The German forces retreated through unexplored terrain and struggled to survive. In the mobile war of East Africa, they were no longer a threatening force, and the British disbanded their force on the 3rd of October. This battle for Tabora remains a source of pride for Congolese to this day, and the implications were far-reaching. Most obviously, this meant that the force publique, and accordingly the Belgian Congo, 
occupied the western third of German East Africa. Belgium itself may not have been a major power in the European theatre, but in Central Africa its colony certainly was. The Belgians fully intended to use this as leverage in the negotiations after the war. They were largely without influence in the peace treaties after World War I, but in Africa they were keen to protect their position. Knowing their hand was weak, they acquiesced to the British claim on East Africa. The British Empire was now closer to their lofty goal of the Cape to Cairo colonial corridor, sweeping north to south throughout the African continent. But knowing their weakness, the Belgians were most concerned to keep control of what they had. They were acutely aware that the British and Americans, who combined were the main deciders in the boundaries after World War I, still looked unfavourably towards their colonial ambitions. Trying to manage the situation, a Belgian diplomat, Pierre Ort, said to the British diplomats, Imperialism has no followers here, i.e. Belgium. Therefore, we do not want to increase our colonial property. It is quite sufficient for our needs. Very humble indeed, especially considering the fact that the Belgian Congo was almost 80 times the size of Belgium. What they really wanted was the control of both banks at the mouth of the River Congo and the Atlantic. Portugal retained control of the southern bank, which left the colony's access to the sea exposed. But they were unsuccessful in this claim, as Britain remained loyal to its oldest ally, who had sent forces to the Western Front. As recompense, Belgium received the mandates of Rwanda and Burundi, individually roughly the size of Belgium. But the influence of the United States was on the rise. The US were opposed to colonialism, except of their western borders, as we have seen. These were mandates rather than colonies, and they forced Belgium to acquiesce to unlimited international access in the whole of the Belgian Congo. The campaigns of Morrill and Shepard were not forgotten, and they would continue to be watched. But there were deeper implications beyond these geopolitical machinations, and these were to sow the seed of longer-term consequences. Firstly, the military victories had led to a human link between the European officers and the forced public soldiers. The sheen of the Europeans was starting to fade. The troops had also seen the colonial forces fight a vicious war against each other. The technical might of planes and the naval guns was impressive, but their moral superiority was waning. They could no longer preach the evils of conflict. The Congolese knew that there was much more in common between themselves and the aloof Belgians. The initial shock of power was starting to wane. Finally, the economic value of the Congo's resources was very much on the rise. Not only had the Congolese been instrumental in defeating Germany in Central Africa, but their mineral wealth was fundamental to success on the Western Front. Brussels was occupied from the early stages of the war, but with the government in exile, and the British control of the oceans links with the Belgian Congo remained strong. Allied shells in Passchendaele, the Somme and Verdun all used brass casing to avoid the risk of sparks. This brass was 60% copper, which almost exclusively came from Katanga. Congo exports of copper rose threefold from 1914 to 164 million francs in 1917. To meet this output, people were moved to the mines from all over the country. These demands on the people weren't limited to mining labour. In a throwback to Leopoldian times, a system of obligatory culture was introduced. This meant that farmers were obliged to supply cotton to the porters and soldiers. It was also obligatory to supply foods to the same peoples. Once again, the Congolese were forced to labour to provide goods. But the effect of World War I was over. 
The Belgian Congo had two new mandates as neighbours, and the international community, through the newly established League of Nations, had provided the Belgians with absolute sovereignty. How this colony was run, we shall see next week. Conscious of much publicised previous atrocities, and wanting to prove to the rest of the world that Belgium was a capable and righteous colonial power, more attention was given to the development of the colony. And in a somewhat incongruent characteristics, the Belgians, as a colonial power, would be almost uniquely interested in the health of the people. It will be more a socio-economic podcast next time, as we look at the Belgian Congo between the First World War and the Second World War, a period much less covered. But it does provide the concrete background for understanding the DRC as it is today. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time.